Hello and Happy New Year. It's January. The calendar has ticked over. 2024 is here. I like what we have here to kickstart the new year, as it is something of a three-pronged approach to this episode. First, as I alluded to in the previous episode, I have something fun to reveal now that the new year is here. You have to wait and find out what it is over the opening minutes of this conversation. I think you will dig it. Next, this is an AMA, the Ask Me Anything episode, where you, the listener, sent in questions ranging from van life to general life to high-level gravel questions to specific gravel questions to where the UCI should live in gravel. There's some road racing questions peppered in and podcast questions, lots in between. I called those down and tried to make this into a coherent series of questions. So if this is something you enjoy, please keep sending those suggestions in. And thirdly, lastly, this episode is a one-on-one convo with my wife, Laura. We've done these two or three times now, and they've been really well received. Now, we're known as a family in this contemporary bike racing world in our van, at the races, at rides, so why not on the podcast also? Having her on for this back-and-forth conversation is overdue, and I'm really glad that we could do it here. Three things come together as one. This conversation is quite complex, but it is actually quite simple. Taking care of your health is thought of as complex, but it should also be quite simple. That's why for the last two years, I've been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's one scoop into water, shake, 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 once a day, and that makes me feel like like I'm getting a jump start on the day. I feel immediately energized, hydrated, and like I'm ready to roll. That's because AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and much, much more. If there is one product I could recommend to elevate your health, it is AG1, and that is why I've partnered with them for so long. Look, I encourage you to take ownership for your health. Start with AG1. You can try it with a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase simply by visiting drinkag1.com slash tedking. That's drink, the letters A, G, the number one, dot com, slash Ted King. Please check it out. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Ladies and gentlemen, please let me introduce my wife and myself as today's guests. Ted. Happy 2024. Thanks. Happy post 7 p.m. when the children go to bed and all is quiet and peaceful. How much energy are you having to muster to do this as opposed to go straight to bed? You know, unlike some of the past nights this week, I'm actually uh, I'm actually feeling okay. Yeah? Yeah. The holidays are a hoot, huh? Like, here we are at the very tail end of them. It's January 1. So I feel like for two weeks straight, maybe a little bit less than that, but I feel like for two weeks, you're going, going, going. And yeah, now that it's at the end, took the Christmas tree down today. It's a lot. It is. (laughs) (laughs) How do you feel? Um, Well, I feel thankful for that today was a holiday um, and that we had... For one day, no real obligations and a chance 
for us both today to kind of take a rest day, do things you're supposed to do on January 1st, like clean out closets and purge, which I didn't do because of January 1st, but it felt really good. Mm-hmm. So I feel, I feel re-energized. I think I'm ready for a new year. I went skiing. I feel like that's what you're supposed to do on the first of the year. Does that count, your two runs on the buddy slope? Uh, no, that was a, a miscalculation by Strava. We probably took about s- seven or eight or nine runs, but most of them were on the very shortest slope where you're lapping, like, you know, the one off to the right. So, yeah, that's a 12-second run that I was doing with Hazel, as opposed to we went to the top twice. Oh, so not bad. we did not take two runs. We took... Many more than that. Oh, good. Anyway. Well. Well, how are you feeling otherwise? Uh, good. In the grand scheme of things. I mean, yeah. At, at this very moment, I feel exhausted. But that's because I feel like we've just finished the holidays. And I need a break from the holidays. But I guess that's what the reality of tomorrow brings. Well, is it the holidays or... That kind of brings to mind a good question to kick this all off. Like, you're on a new program. Yeah. How is it feeling? Is it different? What does it entail? Why yeah. are you doing it? It feels so... And how did it come about? Okay, yes. Obviously, this next part is is an aside that I'm not speaking to you about, and I'm speaking to our dear listener. I've taken on the decision with your endorsement and help, and perhaps even suggestion from the beginning, to take 2024 very seriously from a racing perspective. And that is something that I'm really excited about. Um, I was initially, I mean, I think the idea came about in probably mid-October, and I sort of laughed about it for about a week, and then I started looking at what it would entail and having conversations with you and some other folks about it. And yeah, over the next days, weeks, and months, I became really excited about it. And now here I am headlong into training, winter training, working with a dietitian, working with a nutritionist, rather, working with a uh, strength coach, and having my first real cycling coach oversight in eight years. I think it's made life simpler in that uh, it's nice to wake up each day and, and, and not... I mean, you know, I have a training program or I have a lifting program and and to know that that is that's going to be the priority of the day with the juggle of real life and whatever the heck else is going on yeah. ha- having that and having it i mean even as literally as written on the fridge like as you know that is helpful you look at the fridge and say okay oop, ted has a four-hour day ted has an hour and a half day yeah i think it's i mean i the audience i will tell the audience i was the biggest proponent of you getting a coach, not because you aren't good at coaching yourself, but because, um, for one, it's, I think like streamlined our whole family operations by you having a plan that we can kind of orient ourselves around. And number two, um, you have so much going on that it, for you to be able to kind of rely on someone else and to trust them to come up with a plan that makes sense for you, I think is, I think it's a mental load. It's one thing you can actually remove from your day to day and something that you don't have to think as much about and that you can just 
um, go back to kind of trusting the process. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Which is fantastic because it's it's one less thing off my plate. I mean, obviously, with that, I absorb the training. But man, I feel, you know, the benefit of a coach is the accountability. And so, as I've been self coaching, so to speak, for the past seven eight years. I'm aware of cycles and macro cycles and, and specific training intervals that I should be doing here and there. But without the accountability, training has just become catch as catch can, um, which is ride your bike when you can, how you want to. And so, I mean, it ultimately just sort of becomes lazy. It's like, okay, on occasion, I'll do something a little bit harder. And on occasion, I'll push myself to do something longer. But by and large, it's especially this time of year when it's sleeting, snowing, raining, cold, kind of miserable it's like i'll ride the trainer for an hour or two hours or i'll ride outside until i'm cold and wet and just want to come inside whereas now especially after the first week where the weather was pretty bad and then you 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 were holding me accountable it's like all right there are zero excuses i'm doing this and i'm doing this for real and if it says four hours and i've just on the previous two days three hours in the trainer indoors it's like i'm gonna go outside and ride for four hours yeah, I guess the, the greater point of what I was just saying is training has become very lazy for the past few years. And, and even saying the word training, I think, is sort of funny because like, I retired at a specific point in my career because I, I wanted to continue enjoying riding a bike. And I up to this point, I still enjoy riding a bike. I love it. I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's sort of my foundation as much as it is yours. But therefore, the element of, of training just seemed a little bit counterintuitive. It was like, go ride to enjoy the ride you know go and do repetitive vo2 intervals unless you're a masochist is not something that's really fun whereas now to have this feet to the fire plan for next year it's really exciting and so also you know bigger picture why did i do it for one okay a month less than a month from now i'm going to be 41 but i turned 40 two i had a pulmonary embolism that we discovered, what, two years ago, a year and a half ago, and that that took the wind out of my sails in 2022. And the better part of the past year has been figuring out how to deal with that. And in speaking with other athletes who have gone through it and speaking with some high-level specialists, I feel like I'm much more educated and, and in a really good place there. I shattered my elbow, as I think you're aware, <laughs> in the end of 2021 and that was also a huge reason why the past two years have just been a challenge you know i've had chronic pain that's just been debilitating for these past years and what a month and a half ago it was around the exact exactly the same time that we were having the decision whether i should go headlong into 2024 is when i had surgery almost two years to the date of breaking the elbow to take all the hardware out and that has relieved so much pain that I was living with chronically, daily, on the bike, off the bike, sleeping. And I just feel like without the pain, it just feels like a tremendous weight off my shoulders. So I'm like, all these little things seem like good reasons to do it. And then not least of which, I feel like I'm in such a privileged position to be sponsored by the industry for as, as long as I have been, you know, beginning in 2016 in this post-world tour career that I have the support to go kind of do whatever I want. That's the neat part about being a privateer and especially being how long it has been that I've been doing this. I'm not 
hellbent bike racer. I'm sort of adventure, long bike ride guy. But I still, you know, and this is why you you lit the fire under me to use the expression again. Because you know I still want to race. You know I still have that motivation and inspiration. And so it's almost like I was doing a disservice to being in this position because I know there's so many people who want to race and want to test themselves. And they have something else going on. They have, they have family that might not allow it. They have work that's not going to allow it. I, I have everything in my favor. So to not do it just seems like it was a disservice. What about you? Why did you... Well, just instigate me as, yeah, I was going to say as a follow up to that, you know, I never had, we didn't know each other when you were racing in the world tour. So I only know Ted King 2.0 IPA drinking bike rider guy. (laughs) And it's just, you, I mean, even in your 2.0 pre 2024 state, you are an incredibly driven, motivated person who even in your non-training mode is still doing an awful lot of bike riding, but it has been in the last two months, you know, an extra inspiration to just see how, when you decide to do something, how you take it on and the sacrifices you're willing to make and how it's influenced your changes in diet and, you know, not drinking alcohol and, um, and just, I mean, seeing you day to day go out in some of the most awful depressing weather <laughs> uh is really impressive so i mean the process has to be a part of what is even gratifying about all this right no matter what happens results wise um it's i think it's going to be gratifying for you and it's gratifying for me to see just um, how diligent you are towards the process. So, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, going out in this weather is not enviable. I think Ian Boswell said it tremendously well, and I'm going to paraphrase. He had an Instagram story where he was riding in some Vermont muck and just sort of hating it, and the, the caption was something to the effect of, I used to think that this was toughening me up, and I was getting a step up on the competition in riding in weather like this, dot, dot, dot. And then I realized the competition is outsmarting (laughs) me and they're riding in much better weather. I remember that. And so shout out to Ian who totally gets it. Um, (laughs) We moved here in 2018. Yep. We moved to Vermont in 2018. And at that point, you know, I'm three years removed from the world tour and we're looking to settle down. We've been, I've been in the Bay area for a year and a half, two years. You'd been there for seven, eight, nine years and without a real foundation in terms of family. And, and, uh, we were a little bit footloose with, with jobs and careers. It made sense to move closer to untapped and settle down closer to my family. And the idea of bike racing at that point seemed further and further from the reality. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's part A. And then part B being, you know, I had great success in races like Unbound or SBT or, I mean, I basically say like name a race in North America and I've either won it or been on the podium. And certainly that's in the earlier years where the competition is not quite as fierce as it is now. So I'm seeing this. I rode in and and rode residual fitness and did really well. And then this, I feel like it's like a tidal wave. There's no other way that I can describe it as, as a tidal wave of 
speed and seriousness and professionalism that has come into gravel. And so I'm, I'm just sort of looming at the bottom of this wave, watching this wave come crashing over me. And it's like, man, I need to act now or forever hold my peace, you know? <laughs> uh, so that is why I'm taking it seriously. That's why I'm not allowing myself to succumb to bad weather or excuses or, you know, it's taken a heck of a lot of conversation to figure out how it's all going to fit together because it is quite a puzzle but here we are well i do think it is the key being that you still do have this fire within you because you don't have to do what you are doing um you could definitely continue the ambassador path of just bringing the stoke to the gravel (laughs) tour or whatever you want to call it but Mm -hmm. um but no i mean you still you still do enjoy the race the pointy end and you're not going to always get to be there, but I think you still have a little bit of a little bit more in you. I hope so. I'm excited. I mean, that's that's what's sort of funny because in this conversation about the seriousness and the professionalism and how, how hard it is becoming, I don't know what taking it seriously is going to allow me to do. You know, here I am, in the past two years and sort of finish top whatever, top 25, top 20, top 10, occasionally on a podium and a race here or there. Mm-hmm. So if I go hellbent serious, I, I am I am very curious as much as anyone to see what the result is going to be. Will I be fighting for the win or am I literally taking myself back to status quo of like, oh, well, I'm more fit than years past, but the level of competition is that much more that I'm still just top 20, top 10, occasional podium. We'll see. I, I, I'm fascinated as much as anyone. So what, what, what do you predict it will take to consider 2024 a success? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I would be foolish to think that this is about the end and not the means Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see this process and I'm excited to see how it all unfolds in so many words I'm excited to see you know my pants are fitting more loosely already (laughs) in (laughs) two months of serious training and me too because I just have to (laughs) by proxy be on a similar program that's right (laughs) Um, so, I mean, those are inevitabilities, right? I haven't, it's interesting putting metrics to things like what is your weight? What is your fat percentage? What is your FTP? What is your whatever? Um, so all of those will, will simply come as inevitabilities to putting the seriousness to it. That doesn't answer your question. What, what is a metric to success? Yeah. I want to look back having stood on the top of podium in some big races and if not some big races because you know like racing in the world tour to win one big race a year is is that's a metric of success yeah um yeah i think i'll probably keep my cards close to my chest at this very moment about which races i'm targeting but i mean you can probably look at my calendar in the not too distant future and figure it out uh (laughs) health I'm excited to show our kids what we're doing. Um, 
they're obviously a little bit naive to it all. I mean, they, they see us going out in this inclement weather and oh, daddy's going for a bike ride. Mommy's riding the trainer and vice I have, versa. I have lately been in the habit of saying dad's at work. He's yeah. riding his bike. <laughs> well, thank you. That means something. Um, yeah, that's not the, the hard and fast literal answer you might be looking for, but I'm excited about the whole process, so I just want to embrace it and do it to the best of my ability. I'm here for a, it. Thank you. Do you have a personal metric to what will make 2024 a success? Um, How about... Well... Don't, I'm, I don't even want... like By asking that, I'm, that's too selfish. What do you want to do in 2024? Well, I think the cool thing about being a unit um, is we look at our goals collectively, right? So your goals also become my goals. Um, and I'm just as excited about you achieving your goals and what that will take from us, you know, together as a family. Um, yeah, does that, that, that doesn't mean that I don't have my own goals. Um, I think in the past few years, one of my goals has just been to have better balance in life. And I feel like I have come a long way in um, getting better balance. And I feel like a better, more healthier person because of that. Whether it's just like, I've, I've finally started to take things off of my plate. Um, and that's something new. And that's made me be just a more kind of present and... Uh, I, I guess just I feel all around healthier, engaged human being. So I'd like to continue that. I've probably stripped my plate this year as low as as it's ever been, and that was a little uncomfortable for me. Um, I don't really know what to do with myself when I don't have an overflowing plate, but I have noticed all the benefits that have come with that. So I've been a little bit more... Um, conscientious about and and just like really weighing whatever I am adding to my plate. So I have a new job that's part time, um, but that's really kind of adding a lot of fulfillment to my life. And um, the competitive aspect of racing is a component that's still important to me. Um, but I think I think. Bike racing has always fit into my life really well when it's balanced amidst other things, whether that's uh, being more engaged now with, you know, kids and their activities and um, everything that we try to fit in, right? So whether or going to the races together as a family. So sorry, that's kind of long-winded, but um, I think all of that is to say I'm going to do some bike racing. It is not the same kind of um, stacked schedule that you will have. I'll probably attend some of the races that you go to because it works for all of us. And I'd love to do a mountain bike stage race as one of my A races, I guess. I haven't decided which one might fit. Um, And, you know, honestly, last year felt like a really solid year of doing a number of different things and I was happy with my racing and I didn't have a really strict plan going into it. So I'm kind of hoping that things shake out that way where 
pick I pick some races that I'm excited about. Um, I am someone who would like to kind of find new and exciting races rather than just racing the same circuit all the time. So mm-hmm. try to seek out a few um, new and exciting races and see where that takes me. Well, you carried the torch for the family last year, ending up <laughs> on the podium more than the other king. So, <laughs> And inadvertently, right? I mean, you did yeah. so in races that you weren't planning to do. So I think no different. There will be races that you're going to end up at in 2024 that you have no idea you're even going to be lining up at. And there's something nice about not stewing over the angst and anxiety. I mean, I, yeah, I recognize the opposite of that. It's nice to have a goal to be training for in particular, but you pivot well, uh, not at the last minute, but without without huge anticipation going into races. So yeah, I guess that's uh, to your credit. I, as you know, I get really anxious about racing, and well, that's I don't. What I was trying to say I don't like. <laughs> how anxious I get. And so I noticed the more, you know, the more I put into my race schedule and like having some high expectations, the more I have angst about it all and the less I actually enjoy it. So I've realized a little bit of a recipe for success for me is to um, be a little bit more spontaneous about my racing, a little more, I mean, I've definitely... I am very consistent in my training, but I'm also somewhat relaxed about how, you know, I think consistency will put together decent fitness. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know. I'm just, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get too uh, worked up about my 41 year old placement in races anymore. So, <laughs> age group, age groupers. Okay. What do you think? Should we ask and answer some of these questions? Oh, yes. We have a list here. Um, we've called the list. There's there's a bit of a, a um, series of themes that came to the top. So we will begin the, the AMA, the Kick Q&A. it off with the theme of life and van life. Hit it. I feel like this is an appropriate first question to kick off the year and given our weather circumstances. Have there been days where even pros like Ted King wake up, look at the bike, and go, ugh, I really don't feel like riding? What do you do on those days, weeks, or months? And is there, are there any stories about a particularly challenging time when you really didn't love riding? So this question might have come in even before I had my current motivation for the coming year. Um, and with that said, I think there have been plenty of days in the past month. We've had a very dreary December. <laughs> I'd call it wet and precipitous and cold. Gray. Um, so I bet there have been plenty of those days that without the current training schedule I'm on, I would say, oh, I don't feel like riding. And I don't say it in a really dour way. I would say, oh, I don't feel like riding for three hours, so I'm going to ride for 90 minutes. I'm gonna, I don't feel like doing four hours, so I'm going to go ride the trainer. I'm going to go Nordic skiing. I'm going to do something differently. Whereas now, to be on this program, it's like, okay. And it almost speaks to the last question. What do you do when you really don't love riding? And you alluded to it as well. It's like, this is a job, and I, I want to and need to treat it like a job instead of casually being like, hmm, another day off. Well, it's raining, another day off. So... Yeah, there are days that the motivation's not there. I 
think, without trying to put words in your mouth, I always feel better at the end of a ride having accomplished it than uh, twiddling my thumbs and, and seeing the time pass by and be like, shoot, it's the end of the day and I should have gone for a bike ride. I mean, I don't let that happen. And I know that you don't let that happen. Um, but so, I yes. think that right there, I think we we have learned something about ourselves or I'll speak for myself. I've learned something about myself. I'm more apt to get my workout in in the first half of the day than I am if I leave it for the second half. Mm-hmm. I am, when I have low motivation, if I remind myself how good I'm going to feel afterwards, that is helpful. But I also, and I rarely have to do this anymore, but I often will say, if you get dressed and you get on the bike and you still don't, and you start your workout and you still don't feel good, then you have, you know, maybe something's going on. Maybe it is time to, maybe there is a reason for a day off. Mm-hmm. I think I could count times that's happened on one hand because more often than not, you get going and you already feel better. You already feel, you know, it's, that's half the battle is just getting out. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's been helpful. And I think, especially if you're in a place with really inclement weather, um, and the motivation can be tough to get out the door. It benefits you and me and presumably the listener to be diversified. Like you love to swim and you found a pool relatively close by. I've really embraced running for the past year and, and think there's tremendous benefit to that. Um, Nordic skiing, if we were out a better winter than Nordic skiing or Alpine touring is a really great way to get that base fitness, which is key to this time of year. So and I very much rely on friends. Yeah. So if I can, if I know the weather's bad and I make plans with a friend, I will get out the door rather than um, wasting, kind of like looking out the window and wasting my time and thinking, oh, maybe I'll go in one more hour. Accurate. Okay. Next question. I'm going to pose it to you. It reads, my, life, my wife and I are considering embracing the van life. However, one concern is the bathroom situation, especially in terms of privacy and potential close quarters contamination. How have you managed this aspect, especially when traveling with a family? And I will interject if you are listening to this and don't know that we have a van and use it frequently. Uh, The King family has had a van for three years. We've done half dozen cross-country trips and one, two, three months at a time in the van or on the go. So Put about 15,000 miles yeah. on the road this year. No shortage. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so, my dear, what do you think about bathroom situation, close quarters contamination? Um, Actually, those are two very different things yeah, that are very important. In terms of privacy, um, I mean, the where, where we have our toilet set up, there is a bit of privacy with the counter and the bed kind of blocking it um it's something that i mean we often are camping somewhere where there is a campsite bathroom and if so unless it's the middle of the night we try and use that we don't use the toilet for well maybe you've used the toilet once for number two if that even it's such a (laughs) it is a great question it's also kind of hilarious. Um, presumably, your wife or you have seen each other take a number two before. <laughs> um, 
it's not, and I'm picturing these hilarious memes of like, you know, your typical dude meme in the bathroom is he's sitting on the toilet for 45 minutes. That's not going to happen in the van. No. It's like, if you're going to do a two, then you're going to do it as quickly as possible. And to your point, you know, you've had this toilet, you know, it's a little cartridge toilet, I think, or cassette toilet, I forget what they call it, a Fetford 360p. <laughs> um, and more often than not, way more often than not, yeah, we're in a campsite and then there's a, a, a camp toilet out, outdoors, which saves me from having to empty the poop from our little toilet. But peeing, I think, is the greatest thing ever. It is. And it saved us so much time on the road while we're driving. We can just pull over and not have to go out into the gas station bathroom if we don't need to or we're in the middle of a, you know, Hazel just suddenly announces, I have to go to the bathroom. We pull over immediately and she can go and it takes all of two minutes. So yeah, in short, that's a benefit. Now, another great point, close quarters contamination. Because if you're living in your van and you have... Um, Food and cutlery, so on and so forth. I mean, I think sanitation just speaks volumes. And having little kids, it's the same thing. It's like you're washing your hands often. you got hand sanitizer here and there. Uh, you don't wash your knives in the toilet. So <laughs> truth be told, it's a great point, but not one that I think needs a whole bunch of stewing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there you have it. Great question. Great Let's question. Go Let's go on to the next one. How do you and the family eat healthy while you're on the road? I know from personal experience, it's super easy to fall into the fast food trap while traveling. Any tips, tricks, or advice would be awesome. Thanks so much. John. Thank you, John. Um, I think we do a good job of this. As the resident grocery shopper for our van trips, is that accurate? Yep. And majority chef and majority chef i think it takes the foresight of knowing what you're going to be cooking and then it it, a great deal of efficiency unfolds by living in this tiny house on four wheels or six wheels because we have a dually and in particular having a a small fridge like you need to be efficient with having a wide range of foods from kids milk to kids snacks which all revolve around dairy and cheese um but then a variety of eggs and and dry goods and so on and so forth. I think the you know we prioritize thinking about what the next meal or two or di- sorry dinner meal or two is going to be. Having sandwiches on the go, just knowing that you have something that's relatively healthy or a leftover from the night before. Uh, I mean, I want to say that the the easiest place to go astray and start going the fast food route is if you don't have lunch it's like oh it's going to be a lot easier to go to insert fast food restaurant name instead of making a sandwich basically it's just having a plan you have your lunch you already have your dinner planned out be it a stir fry or we do as many efficient one pot meals as possible i feel like we rely a lot on trader joe's when where we can find them on the road i mean they have a lot of Packaged salads are pre-mixed, you know, salad in a bag. Mm-hmm. We almost always have some kind of salad or vegetable with our meal every night, but having something that's kind of less prep mm-hmm. comes in handy. And breakfast is super easy. Some fruit, yogurt, cereal. We've cooked pancakes plenty of times. Oatmeal. We have a microwave. Yep. Whose van doesn't have a microwave? Come on. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little foresight. We've just never, I mean, to your to the question askender's point, it's easy to fall in the fast food trap. We just never really have fallen into the trap. So that abyss has not sucked us in. I mean, and then you have some sort of 
talent and also finding really cool gems of bakeries and restaurants on the road that I have not had as much success in my own uh, searching. You seem to always find the good ones. So we do sprinkle in some, you know, the highlights of a day, we, we we have had many a full day of driving. And on those days, for me, the highlights are our meals. So whether it's finding a cool place to stop with a great coffee or baked good, or even just ending the evening with a good dinner and a glass of wine, that can be the final kind of, you know, uh, perk to just some of those days are really tiring and long. So it's yeah. little things. And I'm sort of laughing at the... I'm not sure if there are children in this equation sent from the question asker. Given that we have kids and, like, you need to get them fed or in bed on time, and if you don't do either of those things that evening and the next day are just going to be a complete and utter disaster. It it benefits you to have a schedule and be set on that plan. And if you don't have kids, then there's really no excuse. Like, you have all the time in the world. And you can do anything you want. And you can just do it. So... I, one thing I have to say, I am proud of our evenings where we decided to get the kids to bed fed and in bed. And we have this great I don't know what you call it, like a room divider shield that we put up so the Mm -hmm. kid's bed is kind of boxed in with a black shade. And we turn up the sound machine and then we sit at our kitchen table in our van and eat our meal in peace peace and quiet and relax. And um, when that works out, it's really great. That's That's a victory. That's a victory for sure. Uh, as an elite athlete, when setbacks occur and he or she finds themselves in a deep hole that they're unable to get out of, when is it time to seek mental professional support? Um, I am lucky in that I've never had to seek mental professional support. But I've certainly had my share of setbacks, which is why I wanted to prioritize this question. Um, I mean, I think having having people to rely on, professional or otherwise, I think is really helpful. And I'm one to keep my cards close to my chest and not really vent and, and explain my woes. I, I am a New England stoic, and I... <laughs> grind my teeth and I get through a lot of my problems. Um, a lot of my problems have been orthopedic setbacks. The pulmonary embolism was, was much more nebulous and uh, working through that is is not as easy as waiting for a bone to mend. Um, so when is it time to seek professional mental support? I think if you're asking this question now is probably a really good time. If you've if it's brought you to the point that you're asking around. I mean, that begins with merely asking a question, and there's no harm in that. Do you have any insight into this one? Uh, I I would just completely agree with what you said. Like, I think anyone can be helped um, by sourcing professional support, no matter how healthy of a person you are. You know, there's no, so there's no shame in... Um, finding someone to talk to. And if you don't have that person already in your life, that's like a coach or a spouse or someone who really has the 
tools. Um, and that's why we have those professionals. Um, and I think you're, I mean, look, you're lucky to have your brother who's a psychiatrist. If you really mm-hmm. wanted, you could turn to him. You have a lot of people in your life you could turn to, but not everyone does. And um, so I think seeking that person out is a really wise thing. Yeah, and it's, I, the more I think about it, the more I see the value in having a cycling coach. I mean, I, I coach a half dozen people and I, I really value those relationships with my athletes. I'm really glad that now for the first time in a very long time, I have a coach. I don't think there's any coach or nutritionist or, or someone who is a helper in that regard who lives in such a silo that if they were, if they received this question, Hey, I've had this setback and I'm really, really struggling. I don't think that coach or that nutritionist or, or strength coach or mentor is going to be like, Ooh, that's a bummer. You're going to have to figure that one out on your own. Like those people are all there to help and they might not be trained in mental support, but they will be able to begin to help you on the right way, you know, setting up the right stepping stones. So having people in your life, exactly what you said is key. Yep. 100%. I'm a huge fan of Vermont beer. What is your number one go-to Vermont beer? That's a great one. Um, and yes, I'm I'm beginning my life of abstaining from alcohol much more than I have in a long time. So it makes me think of, um, you know, the big Vermont ones. Anything from The Alchemist is great. Anything from Lawson's is delicious. Anything from Hill Farmstead is renowned. Uh, and Green Empire Brewing is the lesser known Vermont brewery that I think makes extraordinarily good beers. And you, I think, like beer a lot, but happen to enjoy whatever beer I bring home. Exactly. So all those (laughs) answers stand. Having now been retired from the pro road peloton for a while now, are there any road or classic races, day long or stage or a few days of multi-day race that you'd like to ride again at a civilian pace? Take in the view, cafes, bars, suggestion, you, LTD, house, and a spring classic route of your choice. Perhaps bring along Roger Brown for added hilarity or serve as your mascot. Um, so yeah, are there any classic road races that I would like to go do at a civilian pace? Uh, the, I mean, heck the whole world tour calendar is pretty spectacular. Um, I can't help, but always think fondly of the Dolomites. Northern Italy is phenomenal. Um, I did a couple training camps there. I did the Giro a pair of times and both times I, I remember it just scratching the surface of being able to look around and be like, Oh, this is spectacular. Oh, okay. Back to the show. Like we need to switch on. Um, people will often ask me about bike racing in France and I have done not a whole bunch of bike racing in France. So that is the spot. And Switzerland, I think is uh, both Switzerland and Austria. I did a handful of tours of Switzerland and tours of Austria and they're both stunning they rain a lot, so it'd be nice to go. Um, if you could forecast your trip to the dry season, that'd be wonderful. Those are the spots. You can take me to any of those spots. It kind of okay. reminds me, well, if we did Hote Root Pyrenees a few years back, and if that is any preview to what, how, you know, how spectacular the Dolomites are, then I'm mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pose this to you, and I'm going to pivot the question. Okay. 
for the time crunched mom or dad with two kids who still wants to perform well at races and events, what recommendations would you have for training? I normally have about 90 minutes. Okay, so that was the bigger question. How do you make recommendations? And then we're going to go into this person's specifics, which I think is still be very valuable. I normally have around 90 minutes a day to train. Most of the time, a little bit of time at lunch, a little bit of time after the kids go to sleep. Is running a good alternative given time constraints? For the bike, should I be continuing to use Trainer Road or the structured for the structured workouts or Zwift? Unfortunately, most of my riding is indoors given the schedule, but I don't try and get out as much as possible. I just can't let go of my desire to empty the tank at events and be at the top. Okay, well, um, the first thing I would say is given the fact that you're training indoors, that's actually excellent because it's the most efficient um, workout that you're going to get. You're maximizing the amount of pedaling you're doing in 60 to 90 minutes. I am a huge fan of structured workouts like Trainer Road. I don't often use Lyft, but also great. I think either of those are going to provide the high-intensity work that you will benefit the most from. I personally um, enjoy Trainer Road the most just because it helps you to progress. Um, it's it's like having a coach. You know, I love the fact that they're categorized um, endurance, tempo, VO2, um, threshold workouts. And you can say, I want to work out for 90 minutes in this zone. And um, then it will give you a whole variety of workouts you can choose from. And then it also helps you each time to build from the workouts that you've done before. So it helps you to progress and show, and it shows when you are um, making that progression by upgrading your FTP. And um, so it very much guides you in the process, which I enjoy. Um, I think, you know, honestly, this is the, this is the majority of us. This is, we all have 60 to 90 minutes or so during the week. And I think you can do a lot with that window of time, especially if you have a little bit longer on the weekends. Um, you know, if you train really smart and you have eight to 10 hours per week, you can be solidly competitive. Um, and I think if you're aiming to be the most competitive on the bike, then your time is probably going to be best rewarded from time on the bike. But, you know, some days I think remaining flexible, if you only have 45 minutes and um, it just makes the most sense to put on your running clothes and get out for a quick jog, um, your, your, your cardiovascular system is going to benefit from that and you will still see fitness gains. Um, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to ruin everything to get out to, to do some cross training too. I'm laughing that you said 45 minutes is a quick jog because I think for the majority of people, 45 minutes is a very long run. Well, that's true. I guess I'm going off of, if they're concerned that they only have 60 to 90 minutes, so if, let's say they only have 30 to 45 being an even shorter window, and you really want to maximize that, yeah, sometimes you're going to get actually a better workout from going on a run. You're going to, just the very fact that you don't have to put as much, you know, get it, get your bike on the trainer, and maybe just gear up. The gearing up process is shorter. Running is, we know running is very time efficient. It is. Uh, I would add, 
being part of an ongoing program, be it Trainer Road or Zwift has um, their own training programs as well, is incredibly valuable. I think it gets easy in this sort of situation. You get sucked into the idea of, I don't have a lot of time, so I need to hammer every single ride. And then if you're only doing VO2, VO2, threshold, tempo, VO2, VO2, you are ultimately doing yourself a disservice. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't speak to how meticulous these 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 lengthy week multi week week long month long programs are, but they have zone two endurance riding in there, and and so much of training this time of year is is meant to be done at lower intensities, um, just to build that foundation, build that base. Yeah, to your point, eight to ten hours per week. You can do a heck of a lot with that. And then the ability to get out longer on weekends begins with communication with your employer, with your spouse, whatever it is, so that you can get those longer rides as needed. No disagreement running or any sort of cross-training. Strength training is incredibly valuable. I'm really I'm really glad that I'm doing more strength training now for the first time in eight years. I mean, I would call it very haphazard over this past period, whereas going into this next 2024 phase, personally, I think is really beneficial and you're doing a bit of it as well yeah it feels really good i mean it's sort of i i it's tongue-in-cheek we're laughing because we're both 40 41 years old now and it's like well time to start paying attention to the bigger picture yeah and strength training is really good for longevity but you know what i've also enjoyed is that let's say i do 60 minutes i do try to do a decently challenging workout on trainer road and then I am able to put 30 minutes into a strength session I come away after only 90 minutes of feeling like I did I really did something I feel accomplished my legs feel tired um and I think you can get a lot out of you can squeeze a lot out of 90 minutes big time big time yeah that's really the majority of what I've been doing lately mm-hmm. <laughs> um on the topic of the evolution of gravel, having been involved in the gravel scene since its inception, how do you feel about its development? Were there any early expectations or predictions that turned out to be incorrect? Do you feel that gravel racing is in its right season now? This is a good one. And I'm asked this question frequently, and I still struggle with the answer. I accept where it is now. There is certainly a part of me that pines for days of yore, you know, when it was uh, a little more casual, a little less hectic, a little less dangerous, a little less frenetic. And I've most certainly come to the realization that the sport of cycling and the facet of gravel, but the general sport of cycling is very fluid and to purely hang on to, to images of the past is a little bit, well, it's wildly futile. But um, I think we need to embrace any moment that we're in. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's really cool what is allowed for a lot of cyclists. I mean, we look at the state of cycling in North America. Obviously, road racing is, is trying to be revitalized, but largely on its deathbed. Cyclocross is not terribly popular. North American mountain biking is not terribly popular. And gravel is this this lifeline that has been thrown to North American cycling. And I think that's 
awesome. It is putting people on bikes who would otherwise never ride a bike, plain and simple. And I think that's incredible. You see these races that have two, three, four thousand people, many of whom would never be riding a bike otherwise. That's that is cool. That is introducing people to cycling. I mean, I get how it could be calling the kettle black if I say, oh, I, I used to think of this better time when I was winning all the time and, and things were great. It's like, no, the, the sport changes. The sport is fluid. Look at what we've got, embrace it, and enjoy it. Um, there was a time probably three, four, five years ago that I would, when we were talking about, oh, man, there's so many parallels between 1990s mountain biking and contemporary gravel. It's like the sport that is going to go through some really tough growing pains. And so I would say then, like, okay, what are the things that we love about gravel right now? What can we literally take from this right here, right now, so that we make sure we don't lose those? And it's hard to sink your teeth into something literal and say, how do we keep this thing? How do we keep community? You know, that's the word that we always hackneyed use or use in a hackneyed manner which i think of in in terms of the second part of the question were there any early expectations or predictions that turned out to be incorrect i mean i think we predicted that it would get serious we predicted that it would get professionalized there have been predictions that there would be teams which i'm happy to say is not really the case although more and more teams are popping up like we can't lie there is a specialized off-road team or whatever the heck they call it and and the hit squad, uh, Keegan and Tobin, they're a two-person hit squad. And, you know, they. it doesn't hurt that the best cyclist in North America has a domestique. So that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you have any takes? What's your take? Yeah, I think one expectation, I guess, early expectation for me, I was a staunch advocate for the mass start. I love the dynamic of racing with the men. Um, I love, I, I've just really enjoyed everyone starting on the same starting line. Um, however, my perspective has changed in that since this, the fields have grown, the competitiveness has grown, and I found myself in many a position where I feel, where I'm actually just fearing for staying upright on the bike and um, it just feels downright dangerous. So many of the moves towards um, a separate elite women's start, I think is a complete right decision. I can't help but pine for the days of yore <laughs> where we did all begin together um, because it's a lot of fun. But I think, you know, like I think about safety more often than I ever used to. I think having kids has definitely brought on a higher level of anxiety on the bike um, where where that's one of my top concerns now is um, staying out of trouble, staying healthy and unbroken. (laughs) Good moves. For better or for worse. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Unbound as retirement for road riders. There's a perception that some road riders are using gravel racing in events like Unbound as a sort of retirement plan. What's your take on this? I think no. I mean, you know, we could nuance each of these terms like retirement plan. Um, I think the people who are leading the way in gravel, and you can pick a variety of names right now, the ones who are having the the most success aren't 
in my my perspective, aren't pure hell-bent bike racers. They have a slightly broader perspective of where it fits in their career, their longevity, the, the whole storytelling piece. Um, so by what I'm, what I'm thinking of is the retirement plan. Is this just a quick cog in the wheel of time and this is the next phase? It's, it takes consciousness, perspective, uh, the, the understanding of where they are in the whole peloton. I mean, are they... Man, I'm going to have to edit this answer. This is abysmal. I know exactly what I'm trying to say, and I just can't say it. Want me to interject? <laughs> I, would, I would love to hear your uh, perspective. The thought that comes to mind for me is the example of Kasia Niadoma. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a top world to, women's world tour rider mm-hmm. who came and raced Big Sugar. And her f- first comment upon winning was, there are many people in the world tour that talk about gravel as being, you know, the thing that you go do when you want to just be like casual and having fun and kind of done racing. And she said it couldn't have been farther from. My experience was, she said, it couldn't have been farther from that. This was every bit as hard and competitive as the racing I do now. And I thought that was cool. Uh, that was cool to hear um, because. While this may have been the case that these races were in the past few years more of a retirement plan, I don't think that that's any more really what's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a. I think that was perfect. In hearing that, I'm going to take take another stab at my answer. Okay. I think there is a perception that people are coming to gravel and they're going to hop on their bike and slap a number on and then ride off in the sunset. And that's their, quote, retirement plan. And maybe I'm misinterpreting the question, but that's sort of what I think there is the perception of. Whereas I think the people who have longevity and have staying power and have it not be a retirement plan are the people that do have this greater perspective of where they fit into the peloton. And competitivity is seemingly chief number one driver for longevity but understanding a, a more holistic picture of where they fit in, I think, allows allows it to be a, a, a staple part of their career rather than, quote, retirement plan. When, when you say where they fit in, are you talking about everything from personality to um, how they race and um, kind of what they bring to the community rather than just their race results? Yes, which, you know, okay, social media, love it or hate it, I think it's an important part of what this, what it is to be a privateer. Mm-hmm. If you can speak exclusively with the results, more power to you. But those folks are few and far between. And so you, you better be able to do quite a bit more. And that involves speaking with and on behalf of sponsors. We'll, we'll get to a, a similar follow-up to this question. Um, okay. Ted, I was just tuning into Payson's podcast where he was chatting about both the lifetime events and the UCI gravel championships that just recently took place in Italy. That got me wondering, do you think leagues like PGA and Live Golf and on the cycling side, UCI and Lifetime Series, they need each other to push the sport forward? Are we looking at two totally different vibes and cultures that will always have their own separate things going on? I would love to hear your take. This is an excellent question. I think as time goes by right now, we're in, I still think we're in gravel's infancy and we're seeing 
different series pop up. There's the Lifetime series. There is the Belgian Waffle Ride series. They're up to what? A half dozen events now? There is the Gravel Earth series. And it's still... Um, you know, they are all still quite young. And by that I mean we're going to look back in a decade and, and think about what these events are and what these series are. And, and some, may, some of them may exist and some of them may be long gone. I, I do think competition is good for... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, accountability. I mean, you don't want there to be a, a pure monopolization on, on the events so that people show up at only the same homogenized events. Um, I do think that there is a very different vibe in different places. I think what is happening in, in Europe is going to enjoy and embrace the UCI series in a much more uh, appreciated way, whereas I think there is a little bit still something of a cavalier Wild West approach here in North America. Um, and to that end, I, I do find it the tiniest bit, not concerning, but I want to make sure that smaller events still succeed. And you and I ran an event, and let's be honest, you ran an event for four years. Three years. Well, yeah, four, <laughs> including a COVID year. Yeah. Um, and we got up to, what, 1,200 people? I mean, we were a, a sizable event. But it's it's still... it. <sighs> smaller events are hard to run. Uh, I don't want the small events to be eliminated by the big the big folks who have scale, who have staff, who have uh, the ability to extinguish other events. I mean, ultimately, there is just there's competition from an event promoter standpoint too. And as I, as these big series grow and they start to take up more and more weekends, it's harder for the smaller events to survive. Hey, I mean, look, take one look at the triathlon world. It's an unfortunate reality that once Ironman kind of, um, you know, sunk their claws into everything, it it did kill the little guy. There are very few local triathlons that exist across the country anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and most races are Ironman branded and owned these days. So, yeah, that is something I would like to not see happen to the gravel landscape. I think... Speaking of the gravel landscape, I I love shorter events. Like, not everybody can train for 200 or plus mile events. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what thing that's really been really cool in, in the Northeast is we have events that are 40 miles long, 50 miles long, 60 miles long. And Variety they're tough is and they're the technical. spice of life. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to race 150 to 200 miles every time I go just get on a start line. And most, most general folks out there don't have the capacity to be able to do that week in and week out Mm -hmm. um the other thing i would just say i'm with less familiarity about what the uci gravel series is doing it seems as though there's more of a focus with storytelling within lifetime and their coverage that has been happening they do a good job with um helping the viewer to get to know the personalities and riders within the sport. And I think that is a crucial part of growing the sport, right? Like the more you can um, lean into storytelling and get people to uh, 
really understand the key players and follow them, the, the better the sport is going to be. And so I don't know if that's a really on the agenda of the UCI or not. It doesn't seem on the agenda of the UCI, and this definitely alludes, or we'll segue into the next question. It benefits the audience to have people to cheer for. And so, yeah, the Lifetime Grand Prix has done a great job presenting the athletes and saying, here are the top, not top, these are your male athletes, these are your female athletes, here's how you follow along, there's more and more series going on, yada, yada, yada. And then, yeah, like you said, live coverage, helicopter coverage at Big Sugar. Whereas, if you're going to tune into uh, Belgian Waffle, for example, you might recognize a half dozen names, but then there's a whole lot of other names that, that you don't recognize. Not the danger, but we'd be remiss to not mention that Lifetime is a multi-billion dollar corporation, and they have the ability to present the athletes. And, and it is a rising tide. So Belgian Waffle or Steve's Gravel Race 101 is going to benefit from these these top 30 male, top 30 female riders showing up. But there's we can't forget that it, it's this huge corporation that is that is allowing that to happen in the first place. That's true. But even even within how we ran things at Rooted, I felt as though it was very important to throughout the year for us to introduce the top athletes coming to the race for us to give context to their backgrounds and get people excited to understand who the riders were who were coming and and to have adequate storytelling throughout the race even though we were you know just another like a smaller race in Vermont I still thought it's important um, to have ambitions to deliver a good viewing experience to the best of our ability and I think every race director should aim for that and it's taken a long time for a lot of the races to kind of step up to that I mean it was only a few years ago when Unbound didn't even have live race coverage if you remember 100% I mean yeah you have a different standard by which you measure uh, what is acceptable? You have a you have a marketing eye and understanding, and you've been to a lot of these races and can understand the value of presenting the athletes, um, which speaks to your knowledge and your your appreciation for it. So yeah, what you did with with Rooted is above and beyond. Most events don't do that, and I'm not saying that to shower praise on you because you're my spouse. That is just <laughs> an objective truth, and so I think that's rare. It, it took. A lot. It takes a lot to be able to do that. It takes not a ton to do it a little. It takes a lot to do it well. And it's a lot easier to obsess about how many porta potties you need as yeah. opposed to how do you continue this introduction of athletes. Yeah, anyway. I guess my from my perspective, to push the sport forward, it's it's a crucial component um, towards gro- you know growing the viewership. Mm-hmm. Okay, so sort of speaking of that viewership and who people are watching, next question. Many nations brought top current elite world tour cyclists to the UCI Gravel World Championships. Had the U.S. done the same, would the results have been different? Ooh, great question. Do you have insight into this? No, I want to hear your... I'm very curious to hear your answer. Okay. It is zero surprise to me as I mentioned in this podcast in the past, and so apologies if I'm repeating myself, 
it is no surprise that the top 10 or dozen or two dozen uh, finishers at the UCI Gravel World Championships, something like 95% of them are current road professionals. If the job of a, of a UCI road cyclist is to train for races that are five, six, seven hours long, then that is what they do day in and day out, 48 weeks of the year. Gravel racing, it's not yet that professionalized. The races are all different types and quantities and distances and, and so on and so forth. Oh, it's also in speaking to the, to the professional road racer, the, the amount of dexterity it takes to get through any Pro race in the Peloton is high. To get through a Spring Classic is extraordinary. To get through any race in the Netherlands, Belgium, with the amount of road furniture on these roads that are as wide as this couch is, which is to say less than one lane, that takes a phenomenal amount of bike handling skills. And as much as gravel bike racing is a little bit hairy and haphazard and taking place on these, these gnarly roads, any professional road racer can get through it. Again, Massive hats off to Keegan, who is one of those, what, 5% or so of that top 20 who, who does not race in the current world tour. And he certainly has the chops to do so. So how do we send people like Matteo Jorgensen, Sepp Kuss, Nielsen Palace, Quinn Simmons? I think all of them could stand to do very well. With all due respect to my North American gravel counterparts, I think all of those folks could do as well or better. And somebody might be saying, oh, Sepp, what's this little whippersnapper doing? You know, the dude was a professional mountain biker before he became a road racer. He is built like Keegan. The dude's got wheels, so don't think, you know, don't dismiss him at all. Uh, but he was doing better, bigger, better things, prepping for, or wait, no, he had just won the Vuelta, so he wasn't going to go do it. Nielsen, uh, in the year that I crushed my elbow at Big Sugar, he just dropped in on his first ever gravel race. And if it weren't for a untimely flat, I think he would have won by 15 minutes. Um, he was just absolutely destroying us. I think that was the year he got fifth at Worlds. Quinn Simmons, I mean, the dude's a monster. I watched him when he podiumed Leadville. It was insane what he did. He came back from a flat tire and went by me like he was a motorcycle. Um, Matteo Jorgensen, I mean, geez, what he's doing these days in any kind of race is, is remarkable. So, yeah, we, we sub in some of our <laughs> absolute tip-top road professionals, and I think we, would, we as a country would have been even more competitive. But different strokes for different folks, folks different priorities and different uh, places where they earn their paychecks. So I understand why that happened. Moving on to general cycling questions. With this being the last year of the Maryland Classic, what can USA Cycling do to bring top-level UCI races to the U.S.? We have some sports that have been traditionally popular in other nations come to the U.S., like Formula One. Could the Tour de France have a stage in the U.S. at some point? Uh, I'll answer this from the... Hindquarters to the nose, which is to say, could the Tour de France have a stage in the U.S. at some point? I doubt that would happen, but it would take something outlandish like the Giro to do that. And early on in my career, the Giro was toying with the idea of starting a stage in D.C., which sounds absolutely absurd, and it is, but if it was efficiently done, it could actually be pulled off, given that you the flight is, what, seven hours? If they could charter a direct flight, 
It sounds absurd. It is possible. But unlikely. But furthermore, North America wouldn't care nearly as much about the Giro as it would about the Tour de France. So would the Tour de France ever start in the U.S.? Gosh, that's going to take a good long while. It's also such a traditional sports sport and largely thumbs its nose at, at North America. I think it's going to take another couple decades or generations for that to even be an idea from the ASO. Uh, so much bigger picture. It's all financially based. I raced through the Tour of Georgia, Tour of Missouri, Tour of Utah, USA Pro Cycling Challenge, aka Tour of Colorado, Tour of California, Tour of Alberta. I mean, all of these races, no different than Tour de France, are without um, a title sponsor, whereas Amstel, for example, is a race that is sponsored by Amstel Beer. Um, Money, 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 money. You know, North American races are expensive. Our hotels are expensive. Um, to to put up, to bring riders over and put them up is is a very expensive proposition. Um, I'm not saying that it can't be done, but it's tough and it's going to take a lot more minds than are sitting around this duo right now to figure this one out. Uh, yeah, it's a complete shame that the Maryland Classic came about when it did because it was what the onset was before COVID. They had to postpone a couple years, and then it just it sort of launched with a bust and had a couple on fledgling years, and, and now it's over. I think Formula One is a great example. I mean, it's it's come to North America in a huge way, and it's just it's a whole different ball of wax. The amount of money it takes to install a Formula One track is ridiculous. And so we're just talking about racing bikes on, on open roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the races that have taken place in North America have been really cool. San Francisco, Coors Classic, uh, DuPont, all of the races I said at the top of the question, I think it'd be really cool to bring them back and what it's going to take. Money, 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 money. <laughs> okay, I think we're going to wrap up shortly, so let's deliver the last question. It's probably one that you should ask me. <laughs> okay, this is about the podcast. Regarding the podcast, I've listened to and enjoyed them all. Clearly, there are guests you have newly met, encountered, and others who are longtime friends and colleagues. How much advanced planning is there? Do you have a running wish list of guests and book them as your schedules overlap? I cannot imagine there are many podcasts on the fly, i.e. I'm here and you're here, so let's do a podcast, as you seem to be very well prepared with thoughtful questions and a plan for the conversation. If you could host a podcast with anyone living or not living, who would it be? Um... I appreciate the question because I do do due diligence. And so how much advanced planning? It can be as little as 24 hours, sometimes even less. Uh, I would say it's more often than not much more than 24 hours, but usually it's just in a week or less period. Um, and the, yeah, I think one of my biggest... Um, not pet peeves. I would be embarrassed to be on a podcast and ask a guest a question that is stupidly obvious. 
so I want to be at least mildly prepared, and so I do the due diligence there. Um, how much advanced planning? Yeah, it's just a handful of days. It's a it's a bit of time on the internet. Um, do I have a running list of guests? Yeah, I do. I'm often out on bike rides, and I get really excited about thinking about the folks with whom I could uh, host as guests. The podcast started in 2017? 18? 17? I think 17. No, it was 17. May of 2017. And I really enjoyed that for the first uh, many years, there was it was all live and in person. And then COVID hit, and that stunk. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh gosh, now it's great because I, I can literally interview anybody. And then we went to this whole Zoom format, and that was highly functional and continues to be functional. I think there's something that can't be replaced by face-to-face interviews, and so it's hard to do exclusively online, but we live in a modern world, so getting accustomed to Zoom is, is not a too difficult hardship. Does your wife ever give you good ideas or ideas of guests to host? Um, I don't see that question posted here. <laughs> yes, you are... I don't like credit where credit is due. <laughs> wildly helpful. You're very good at the accountability piece. You're like, uh, time to do this. Time to ask this. Time to invite this person. Time to, yeah. I'm know. also totally kidding, but I do think it's fun to, to, we're both always, we're always thinking about what's next on the agenda? Where are we going? And then thinking, who are we going to be interacting with? And, oh, Ted, we're going to see this person. You should have them on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, yeah. And so at the top of the question, when I'm often saying, oh, I'm just sort of doing it last minute in the last two or three days before, it's because there is nothing to replace a face-to-face interview. And I like those are the ones that I like the most. So it's like, oh, we're going to be at this race. Oh, so-and-so is going to be here. Great. Let's try to track them down and do a podcast with them. If you could host a podcast with anyone, living or... I think they literally meant to write living or living because they want it to be a literal question. Oh, I thought it was like your last and, uh, living or otherwise. Uh, I would like to do a podcast with I think it'd be nice to do with someone of high stature. This is not meant to be a politicized question, but someone who like a politician like a John Kerry. I mean, the central theme to my guests is they ride a bike, and I think it's really cool that somebody like John Kerry is a cyclist. Mm-hmm. Um Reggie Miller is a longtime target. We caught up in person at SBT, but man, he was the man of the hour and, and very, very popular person. I hate infringing on a person, so I never want to uh, take up too much of their time. I know that when we're at events, it's it's a busy period. So I don't know. Who comes to mind? Who should I have on my podcast? Or if you were to start a podcast, who's your first guest? Ooh, I'm bad at putting being put on the spot. I don't know. We're gonna insert an extra long <laughs> gap there too, just to make it sound. You gotta go. If you could go for an, on a bike ride with anyone in the world, living or otherwise, fictitious or non, who would it be? Um, do you know Sydney McLaughlin, who's a world champion? track racer runner. Sarah McLaughlin? She, I, she's 
there are certain athletes who I follow that I'm just in awe of, and she's one of them. She seems like a really, really cool person. Nice. Sydney McLaughlin. And maybe if she rode a bike, then I could keep up with her. Didn't you, what kind of athlete is she? She's a track runner. Oh. Cool. Well, Sydney. Oh. You know who I really want to do one with? Who? And I only think of this because track and field. I don't really follow track and field. L. Purrier. What's her name? Oh, yeah. Vermonter. Olympic runner. Farmer. New balance athlete. Oh, yeah. You gotta, she is you gotta a get that firecracker. Scheduled. She looks like she's five foot two and can run like 108 miles an hour. Yep. Pretty much. Anyway, if y'all know who I'm talking about, you're like, oh, that'd be great. And if not, you'd be like... Oh, I gotta go get the Google machine going. Well, that's a good one. What's her last name? El Perrier Lapierre? I think that's right. It's a very French-Canadian New England name. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Goodness. What's the attrition rate? How many folks have listened to the whole podcast? St. Pierre. El Perrier St. Pierre. That's what I said. Vermont dairy farmer, Olympian. 3,000 meter indoor world medalist, U.S. indoor mile and two mile record holder. No big deal. That's what I just said. <laughs> Repeat him. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for doing that. Thanks, uh, dear listener, for sending in your questions. If this had any sort of sticking power, then maybe we do it again. But uh, yeah, I think the last time we did a podcast together was like two years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is this is an amalgamation of things. One, I wanted to explain what I was doing next year. Two, I want to do this AMA series. And three, for the better part of a year, you and I have been trying to do a podcast together. So, hot damn. We did it. Thanks, hon. Happy Thank 2024. You. And to all, a good night. There you have it. Thanks for listening, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As often is the case with podcasts, we end with the common but heartfelt suggestion. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. And sure, it's unlikely you'll hear this advice and think, hmm, I need to tell my neighbor Jim about King of the Ride podcast. I bet he would like it. No. I mean, more realistically, it's in casual conversation. Hey, what podcast do you listen to? Oh, I've been checking out King of the Ride podcast. Cool. Let me know more about it. That sort of thing. Or posting it on social media, whatever it is. Leave a review in whatever app you're using. It all helps a lot. And no kidding, check out AG1. Drinkag1.com slash Ted King, and you'll be on your way to better health immediately. If you enjoy this format, send more questions my way. Visit IamTedKing.com and submit those questions. Lastly, thank you, John Summerford, for editing this and every episode for the past seven years. That's it. That's all. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.